thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Welcome back, Pete. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. We should point out, uh, nothing's actually happened that's as funny as you might think, despite Matt's giggling at the um, in the fourth take of that, which I'm sure Lockie will clean up beautifully so you'll all go, what's he talking about? But... Um, yeah, we've, we'd, we'd like to have a bit of a chat to warm ourselves up in lieu of a beer, I guess, don't we, Matt, before we start recording? Yeah, well, we very nearly uh, had the chance to record, you know, uh, beer, uh, beer, you know, beer to beer uh, yesterday, um, but neither of us thought to take a microphone Yeah, to do that. So I was in Melbourne yesterday and uh, managed, we managed to catch up. Um, and, well, the, the podcast, the, the interview that we're doing today, we were face-to-face, so that was good. So we've had uh, two in a row where we've managed to be in the same room as we uh, record the actual interview. Yeah, and hopefully that, um, I guess it comes through in the in the finished product, that we were you know, yeah. face-to-face and beer in hand. And we are going to try and do it um, at least, you know, maybe once every uh, four or five weeks because it, it, it does, and we do get good feedback. And uh, I mean, particularly when we can get a guest like uh, Charlie Bamforth particularly. Um, and we've had great um, feedback from our podcast last week uh, in with, with Charlie and great feedback from all of the people who were there. So yeah, it'd be nice if we could organise to do that and uh, get around the country and you know, host a few, maybe a few more um, Meet the Listener sessions too. Yeah, yeah. And a quick shout out too to the, um, the executive of the IBD, the Institute of Brewing and Distilling, who uh, popped along and, and I guess, you know, offered Charlie up, made, him, made it possible for us to, to have a chat to him. And it seems the feedback from both the, I guess, the representatives of the bigger brewers uh, and distillers and the, the smaller or craft brewers, there seemed to be, uh, as a result, leading into and after the uh, conference, I guess, a better understanding of, of, of what each and the other do and, and how each can benefit uh, the other. Yeah, and it, you know, the IBD conference was last week and I managed to get along to a couple of days and James got along to a couple of days um, of the conference, which was good. And... You know, I, I think we may have discussed previously that the IBD is a you know, big, august uh, body that's devoted to brewing training. Um, and I, I guess for a long time, they really only had to reach out to the big three brewers um, to get trainers and the, the, the big guys paid the, the money. Now yeah. that they've got 300 you know, breweries and you know, probably six, seven, 800 brewers in the country, um, they are trying to work out how they tailor their programs to the smaller um, brewer and it, you know all credit to them for, for doing that and they really are making a sincere attempt and it is a little bit of a, a change for them but the, the craft brewers conference was certainly part of that effort um or the craft brewers program of their conference was certainly part of that effort um and uh, it was great to for, to have them along and speak to charlie who was the uh president of the ibd now that is a plane going over prof just That's so right, you, yeah, yeah. just so you know i'm just i'm just a little bit worried about the uh that you're spending way too much money on crockery because um, if that is your dishwasher that makes those intermittent noises, it must be stripping the enamel off them. <laughs> no, that that is actually a plane going over this time. Such is the joys of recording in your home office. Um, but yeah, so so that was fantastic. Really good chat with uh, Charlie. We've had some great um, feedback from the people who were there, um, and it was great to see so many people. I think we had 65. 70 um, along on the night, which was terrific. Um, thank you also to Beer Deluxe for hosting us, Beer Deluxe King Street Wharf. Um, it's interesting, Prof. I, you know, you, you get these, you know, or you, you get 
people forming a view about venues or things um, that may not necessarily be right. And you know, we, we posted uh, a tweet saying thanks to Beer Deluxe for hosting it. And um, a, a long-time regular guest um, of, or a regular listener of, or sort of reader of Bruise News, the, the website, um, sort of chimed in and said, oh, you know, what, what were you all drinking? Uh, you know, what's a beer legend doing there? Um, you know, drinking summer bright lager or something and uh it, it certainly wasn't you know yeah, what, what and was, I was on tap question mark squires and yeah which was a, a bit of a, a dig at i thought well you know look i just let them go through to the keeper but it's yeah it's interesting that uh that those opinions get formed and and uh, and seem to be very hard to shake yeah when Not you know correct. we were drinking you know there, there was a great selection of beer. There, you know, there were a couple of you know there was a yender there was um you know a couple from i there's a couple. Of, uh, there was Grolsch and, uh, and and Carlton Draft, yep. uh, which which is part of their. You know, it's, it's where they are. That you've you've got to yep. you've got to play to your crowd, I guess, to up to to an extent, and particularly in your first couple of months, if that's the way that you intend to to keep going, then you've you've got to start that way. You can't, you can't you know wean one off the other or wean one onto the other, um, you know, overnight and expect to maintain your business. And a, look, a terrific spot um in terms of you know the view of darling harbour and um all that sort of thing it's that i would imagine that rent wouldn't come cheap so at the end of the day you've got to keep your taps ticking over but there was a cashier there was um murray's there was quick Ecom, young henry's four pines flat rock um so a lot uh, a lot of local brewers and uh, yeah no so and it gee they were, they were very generous hosts they made the podcast possible so yeah we can't thank them enough um, for hosting us, and uh, also Four Pines for providing the colch that Charlie uh, commented very favourably on. He didn't know what it was, but he was just a, put, had a couple of glasses put in front of him during the podcast, and he, uh, you know, was very complimentary about it. So that was nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that was good. And um, mate, what else has been? What, what have you been doing this week? What have you been drinking? You had a beer festival last week that you were hosting at. Uh, yeah, Bendigo Beer Festival went off uh, very well. Probably the the biggest crowd that we've had up there, which is good considering there was the Grand Prix on in Melbourne, there was the um, uh, Flower and Garden Show, there was the uh, High Country Harvest Festival. There was a lot, a lot sort of uh, a, a lot of um, competition for the beer dollar. Uh, probably half a dozen brewers who had their first time up at Bendigo, and the punters really, really took to it. Really, uh, it's, uh, just talking to some of the brewers, it was great to see newer drinkers uh, trying interesting beers, trying things that they perhaps wouldn't have thought to try before rather than, you know, what have you got that tastes most like this or that? And, uh, you know, catching up with a few of the punters, oh, I don't like anything fruity. And so, you know, we'll try this or try that. And just getting some, um, you know, some really good feedback. And I think it um, it, it's, it shows that, you know, the future of, of beer generally is, uh, is pretty good. And uh, did you try? Did, have you tried anything new or interesting this week? Uh, yeah, look, I probably did. I probably tried quite a few. Um, but you know, when you, I was drinking a bit of Halo because the you know you're, you're drinking there with the, with the brewer. Uh, and, and look, probably, to be fair, there are too many that I had that um, I don't want to mention because I don't want to leave anyone out. I know fair that's a bit non-committal, but yeah, I should have written them down. Well, I, I was, uh, as I mentioned, I was in Melbourne yesterday just for the day, and it just happened that uh, I, I learned that CUB was launching one of their heritage brands, McCracken's, um, um, McCracken's Beer. Yeah, McCracken's um, was one of the McCracken's. original, the original uh, local, small local breweries um, out of Fitzroy, I think, who became consolidated into what became Carlton and United Breweries. 
Yeah, and I mean, well, Australian Bruce uses uh, you know, issues with CUB's uh, storytelling about their history is you know, well documented. Um, and I guess a lot of people, and, and also with a lot of their heritage beers, you know, I think I was pretty scathing when they brought back uh, Bilimba Goldtop a few years ago and a couple of their other beers um, that were just purely, you know, designed to... Well, bringing back the name and a, a facsimile of the label rather than trying to recreate that style of beer or showcase the particular hop or... Uh... Or just do something interesting with beer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's... Um... And for, for the uneducated, Matt, and I'll include myself amongst those, is it... Is it merely a uh, like a trademark thing where if you don't use it, you'll lose it? So you need to you need uh, to produce something under that name within a set time frame so that you can. Uh, otherwise, it's up for grabs. I, I'm not a copyright or a trademark lawyer. Um, I believe it is. Like you, you can let things go into disuse, and that's where we saw that trademark dispute a couple of years ago, where Thunder Road made application um, to do it. And I think this was one of the brands that was involved in that. Um, and, and I think that may have been what they did a couple of years ago, was just sort of, you know, we are using these. Um, but, you know, I was lucky enough to get along to uh, the Union Hotel. Union Club in, Hotel in Fitzroy. Union Club Hotel in Fitzroy. And I tell you what, if, if you were looking for a pub that was from central casting to have a little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the publican, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but he, he looked... Um, he looked like you know, Reg like, from uh, Sullivan's? Reg, you read no, the... No, 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 no. Much more, I was sort of thinking much more, you know, Brian Mannix um, <laughs> getting older, you know, sort of... That had, had, you know, I, I don't know, I thought he didn't have the long mullet or anything like that, but it's what I would have pictured Brian Mannix as looking Without like when he got uh, a little bit older. <laughs> yeah, bedecked in the sort of stuff that a lot of uh, bars are draping themselves in for that faux history or that faux heritage. And these things, if you took the frames off the wall, you would have a very, you know, very marked uh, shadow around where it's been hanging for, you know, two or three decades. So um, it, it was. And, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm the first to tee off on uh, CUB when they get it wrong. But I tried the beer. It's an amber ale. Um, and we need to have a bit of a chat to Scott um, Vincent, who was apparently behind the recipe development. He's their innovation manager these days, to find out a little bit more about the beer. Because um, I, I got to try it, but I didn't get to find too much about the hops or the, the, the malt bill or anything. Um, it's, not, it's not rooftop red, is it? No, no, because it's definitely an ale. It's got, it, rooftop red was uh, an amber lager. Um, and you know, there have been people that have suggested that that came back as a Ruby, Ruby Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Um, or there or thereabouts. This has actually got it, it. If you think of a beer like Two Years Old, it's got a little bit more body, a little bit more oomph than that. And it actually reminded me the beer that it most closely re, um, reminded me of was James Squire's Amber Ale ten years ago when it first came out. Oh, right. um, I don't know Before if you, it was you remember that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure actually the um, the Nine Tails Amber Ale was the the first of the James Squire releases from memory i think it was I, I think it was it was when chuck was making it yeah and it really so it's a bit deeper a, and richer than say mountain goat fancy pants um yes very very much more malt hop, driven. a hop accented um malt driven beer 
Yeah, so very much malt-driven. Um, it does have a, you know, it's, it's, you're not talking about an American amber or an American brown or anything, but it's, it, it does have a hop um, structure to it, and it's got a nice bitterness that comes through. Um, there is a little bit of hop aroma coming uh, through it as well, but not, you know, it, it, it's not trying to be um, a entry-level craft beer or anything like that. It, is, it was just a very, very nice drinking amber ale um, that I would quite happily order um, you know, I'm nice. at a bar. That said, you know, like it still does rankle a little bit when you sort of read lines in the media release. Um, you know, things like uh, CUB's history goes back to the depths of the 1800s. Our storied history genuinely sets us apart from most brewers in Australia. We grew up as Australia grew up. You know, talking about how much we celebrate our history, and I still sort of think that you know, it's fine to glom onto history now when everyone cares about history. There's been a good 20 or 30 years where your history you just haven't given a shit about and you know you've been willing to you know reference your own market marketing things but so so in 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 that context um you i come up from come at it from a bit of a cynicism that said they are genuinely working with um historians and people to create the history of these brands they're not just doing you know what the crown lager thing was where geez this is a great story it doesn't quite ring true to us either, but we'll just go out there because no one's going to question it. They are actually trying to find what their history is. So um, that is, you know, Kudos. progress. And, yeah, you know, you, you get a credit where credit's due. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whereas I'm quite happy to keep uh, belting, you know, lying over the head um, for, you know, them talking about now through their, uh, you know, Beer the Beautiful Truth campaign. You know, people have got this wrong idea of how much sugar's in beer and that beer makes them fat, you know, isn't this an astounding? When they were the ones that created that perception, you know, ten years ago with Han uh, Super Dry, and it's and it's still pumping out, you know, ultra low carb beers. Um, CB seemed to genuinely have gone well. Yeah, actually, if we're going to talk about our history, we do need to learn it, and are coming out and doing it. So yeah, um, all you know, all, all credit to them. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to see more. And certainly, that the beer isn't just a, a cynical play. They have created a beer that. They're not pretending, and actually I'll read the line out. Um, Many of CUB's famous old beers were ales, high in ABV, bitterness, and counterintuitively sugar. Therefore, while CUB retains many of the old recipes, it couldn't follow them precisely, hence the beers will be a modern iteration of the old styles that we hope will satisfy modern drinkers. And uh, there's a couple of things in there. I I actually don't know if they do have too many of the old, old recipes. Um, Certainly not when I asked them about it previously. Maybe their research has uncovered some, but... They, they do make a good point, you know. People can sort of say, oh, this isn't what McCracken's was 60 years ago, 70 years ago. But then again, all of these IPAs that people are quite happy to talk about, you know, these were the beers that were made to send from England to India. No, they weren't. The, the, the beers that we're drinking now are nothing like the beers that were, were sent to India. They just have that same name. So, uh, yeah, so if you're going to retell that story about the IPA and hang shit on CUB for not strictly following the McCracken's thing, then there's a bit of hypocrisy going on there. I-M-H-O. Just on that, uh, for people who may be keen now that we've talked about it to try it, is it keg only or will it be available in bottles or are you going to... I haven't actually... Are you going to have to catch the number 57 cable tram down down to the the Union Club Hotel and, and, and try it there? Um, I suspect, well, last night was a brand rollout, um, and, and I, I don't know, so I'm actually guessing, um, and this is a little bit of uh, you know, divination. 
We didn't actually get a media release for it. It was it, I just happened to be in town speaking to somebody from CUB who said that they were off to the launch of it. Um, so that in itself is different. You know, they used to trumpet these things with a huge media release and, you know, sort of tell this story. These days they seem to have gone back to much more of a subtle rollout like they uh, had, have yeah, done with yep, the issues. Yep. So they're not making big fanfare. They seem to be – I think that you'll just see it popping up on tap. Um, probably, you know, that th- there'll be CUB um, trophy venues. That that was the thing about the uh, the hotel that I was at yesterday was that you know it was obviously very strong supporter of CUB Carlton Draft you know bunting all around yep. it. So it's 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 likely to be CUB pubs. Um, so it's a business. So it's a not a contract thing, but a, a, a mutually um, you know assisting business arrangement. Um, and I don't think you'll see a lot of fair, fanfare about where it is. I think they're just going to gradually let people discover it and talk about it and, you know, become much more aware. So, uh, yeah, just just keep an eye out at your local uh, CUB venue if it if it's the sort of thing you're interested. Cool. Um, and you know, I believe that we may be seeing more of these rolling out. So I, I don't expect, if you're listening in Perth or Brisbane, don't expect to get McCracken's um, Amber Ale in Brisbane. Um, but I suspect that, you know, other places will be starting to see some of their heritage uh, brands come out in, you know, a, a modern iteration of the style as well. Yep. What, what are your thoughts about that sort of thing, Prof? You know, because they actually are doing stuff with the beer. Um, are you cynical or do you think you're anything that, you know, beer can go the way of, you know, hard super dry or it can go the way of a McCracken's Amber Ale? Um, I'd much rather see beer going the way of McCracken's Amber Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, look, at the end of the day, yes, you, you could be cynical and say, well, you know, since um, CUB um, don't seem to want to produce craft beer anymore, um, it gives them more time and energy to commit to doing, you know, heritage brands. Uh, or you could just sort of, yeah, look at it in terms of, for what it is, the big brewers need to do something. The big brewers can't sit back like Kodak. In the in the eighties, and go, you know, people will still keep doing the same old stuff with photography. Um, people aren't going to keep drinking the same old beers. People, you know, you, we've got to move. They have to move with the times, I guess. And um, it, it it shows, I think, a bit of risk taking because when you look at the the size of the operation um, and the amount, the sheer volume of liquid that needs to be produced, um, you know, for the for their smallest uh, run, you know, like just just the volume of beer needed to just to prime the pump for the filter, kind of thing. Um, they're obviously then going to work fairly hard to to move that out. Um, and look, if it if it does, you know, one in ten drinkers sort of gets a bit of an interest in the in the history of beer in Australia, then that's not a bad thing. It's not, you know, and it's not going to affect anyone else. It's not going to, people who you know the haters are, are not going to drink it, and so, so nothing will change. Absolutely, and, and you know, one one of CUB's great strengths is this you know long heritage that they do have, and all of the brewery brand, you know, all of the breweries that have gone up to to, to make them. You know, sure they've killed them off over the years, and you know, <laughs> forgotten about them until it was convenient. But at the same time, that 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 they could be you know creating yenders where they're talking about how we're this small little brewery that has seventeen caravans driving around the uh, country pouring their beers, which doesn't quite wash with their True brand, and or they you know, that they need to adapt, as you say, and um, use their strengths, and that that is one of their strengths. So anyway, we probably talked about that enough, but uh, looking forward to hearing your thoughts about it when you try it, Prof. Yeah, we'll do.
Um, and, and we might try and tee up Scotty, uh, Scott Vincent to a bit of a chat about the beer as well. Because uh, certainly, you touched on it, I'd be interested to know whether or not the you know, original type recipes or you know, brewing notes have been, have been found. Um, and obviously, you know, yeah, like they say, it, the equipment's different and all that sort of stuff and processes are different now, so we can't recreate it. And why would you? Because it, was, it, it probably wasn't up to a, you know, the, standard that, the minimum standard that people would accept today. Um, but it would be interesting to know, yeah, whether or not they've kind of guesstimated what it might have been like or whether we've actually found some, you know, historical documents. Yeah, no, I get the sense that they haven't. And, and that's one of the things because they have brought back, um, you know, a number of breweries have brought back uh, recreation versions based on brewing logs. But, uh, you know, the, the, the barleys aren't available. Just not, not, not even the malts. The malting technology has changed. The barleys that they used even 20 years ago, just are not available. Um, and I'm trying to work out how to, how we can do this without sort of being seen to be just shills. And I, I think we can probably pull it off. But David Cryer gave an interesting presentation, you know, who sponsors Radio Brews News, full disclosure. But he gave a very um, interesting um, discussion at the craft brewers part of the conference talking about heritage malts. Um, and there are a whole range of malts that were available, you know, at the turn of the century, turn of last century not the current century um that just do not um are not commercially viable anymore because their yields and their uh you know the crop yields um from agronomic point of view and their yields for brewers just weren't up there but some um growers are starting to get some of these heirloom varieties um to provide for craft brewers who might want to you know, add some interesting character and lend a little bit more of a story to their beer yeah. um, and not just looking at pure um, uh, you know, yield um, and, and pure dollars. And that's a way for craft brewers to carve out a niche because they're certainly not um, usable for the big brewers who, for whom a 5% you know, efficiency gain is everything. So I, I think with a beer like um, uh, McCracken's, they're basically acknowledging that you know even if we had the full recipe, a we're not going to drink beers like that anymore. You know, the the ingredients aren't available to us, so we need to sort of come up with something that probably suits modern palates. And, that, and that's what's happened with with all beer styles. Um, you know, and, and and IPAs have gone that way. We you know, even over the last ten years, IPAs have completely changed their character. Um, and some of the early IPAs were um, much less hot forward than the modern ones. Um, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the podcast, I think it was the Bruce Smith podcast, Prof, was, um, they were talking about um, the Anchor Steam Brewery and they were talking about beer styles. Um, I think it was as part of the BJCP. I'm sorry, listeners, I might put it in the show notes if you're interested in, in if you haven't heard it already, but Gordon Strong, I think it was from the BJCP or Randy Mosher talking about beer styles. It may have been Randy Mosher talking about beer styles. Um, that... Anchor Steam Brewery, um, you know, had their um, steam ale, which is a uh, Appalachian control, or you know, it's a trademarked um, beer style name, um, and everyone holds it up as being what steam beers would be like. But the real story that they've actually shared privately is that when they were coming to do a beer for the brewery, the the, the brewery was historical, but when they actually came to do a, a, a new beer. 
they used crystal malt because it was a new malt and they thought it might add a little bit of interesting character. And then they added um, Northern Brewer hops, I think they were, yeah. uh, because Northern Brewer um, was a new hop that was quite interesting. So and it was, it was people inexpensive had... because nobody else was had, had sort of got onto it at the time. And um, I think Fritz Maytag talks about how we had this old brewery that we really wanted to maintain the heritage of, but we weren't bound by an old style of beer that we had to that we had to stick to. So we had the the luxury, if you like, of being able to sort of cobble this thing together and then say, right, what kind? What's the best kind of beer that we can brew on this system? Um, which is good, yeah. So a nod to both, without having to sort of strap yourself to your to your history. Um, but yeah, but mm. it, but it's the, the story has kind of gone that oh yeah, well you know that Anchor Steam is a, a classic example of an eighteen fifties you know um, steam ale yeah, that the miners would have exactly drunk. yeah. We're, we're, when it is absolutely absolutely not, not at all. Yeah. It, it, it was a modern craft beer, but they, but they're invention. they're, they're yeah, they're not purporting um, to have recreated that. That's just kind of the the, the beer became so the, the popular story that, is, that it's you know it, yeah, it's it's kind of become self evident. Yeah, exactly, and and that's you know pretty much where McCracken seems to have gone. You know, we we aren't tr- we, and we're being very open about it. We're sort of brewing something that's a little bit different. It's just coming out as a branding exercise under the um, McCrackens, but you know. Which I think is a fairly honest way of doing it, but uh, we've, we've probably uh, got that one on the ground. We can put it out of its misery now, Prof. Yeah. And uh, looking forward to hearing what you think. Um, guest today, um, thanks for coming up uh, to Brisbane last week, Prof. Um, we learned that English beer writer Pete Brown, um, who I think is now officially a friend of the program, um, having yeah, been on at least three times, yeah. um, we'll have to get him a t-shirt. Yes. Um, Speaking of which, Prof, uh, we a will queue. very soon... There's a queue of people yes. wanting the T-shirt. Well, there, there is a uh, shop coming. Okay. Um, I'm, it, it, it's in development. I'll All send right. you a link so you Excellent. can check it out. Um, but um, Pete Brown was in town, um, to coin a phrase. Uh, he is, I think when we last spoke to him in May last year, he was crowdfunding for his next book, which is looking at, you know, I think it's called Where Does My Beer Come From? He'll yep. tell us yep. um, all about that. Um, and... Uh, he wasn't coming to Australia. So he was touring hop fields in North America, hop fields in Central Europe. Um, and as much as he wanted to include New World hops or Pacific uh, hops, um, he just couldn't justify it within the, the budget yeah. of the book. Yeah. And so uh, Sona would certainly, and I believe Hop Products Australia, Australia yep. may have uh, sponsored him to come out so they could, you know, he could see galaxy hops and the expression of galaxy hops which is probably the hop that is really created the australian hop that has really created most excitement world buzz. Um, overseas yes. um so it was a bit of a i think an eight-day trip he came down for the hop harvest um and got to hop the fresh hop tail for stonewood and then he was in town as part of bruce vegas and we managed to catch up with him before that and this is what he said pete brown Welcome to welcome back to Radio Brews News, and great to actually get to have a beer with you for the first time in. Uh, gee, I think we last spoke to you probably four years. Well, we first spoke to you about four years ago. Yeah, actually. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, we've been years virtually through the miracles of modern techno- technology, and now we get to do it uh, in the analog version, which and I think have is really a beer. Cool. Yeah. So the IRL the, version, as the, as the kids say now, is what the kids oh, say right. in, yeah. in, in real life. In real life. <laughs> And that, absolutely perfect timing. And we have, oh, we've got big serves of Green Coast Lager. Beautiful. Stonewood. Beautifully done. Thank you. This is such a great right. beer. Cheers. Cheers. Let's see how, uh, how the clinky. Oh, listen, how's it? Just pad some, put some just, drinking yeah, music yeah. in here, Lockie. Don't you hate podcasts where they sort of all sit around and drink? We, we, we actually don't drink because. 
we normally record at nine o'clock. But when morning. you're listening to a podcast where people are drinking, you just shake your fist, you bastards. Exactly. <laughs> yes. exactly. So this is nice. This is one back. Beer karma. But Pete, there's a, there's a lot that we uh, really want to talk to you about. Um, but I, I guess what brings you, actually, even before we start, we have to ask you the same question that every Australian tourist gets asked within minutes of getting off the plane. What do you think of Australia? <laughs> How I, many times have you been asked that since you've... Oh, I absolutely love Australia. I, I think I've been uh, really lucky to see some perhaps hidden treasures this time, or maybe not even hidden, but just un, unsung parts of Australia. Maybe not here, but at home, uh, back in the UK, you know, it's all about Sydney, it's, it's all about, maybe a bit about Melbourne, uh, it's Ayers Rock, it's all the typical tourists. And then, you know, I, I don't think I would have ever been to Hobart if, if I hadn't had a reason to go there. And I'm so grateful that I have, because I absolutely fell in love with Tassie. I just think it's one of the most amazing places. It, it is very English. Like it, it, it's got. I mean, I, I don't know England enough, well enough to sort of put it, but it's my yeah. perception of England. Where you've got little cottages, you've got smoke coming out of the chimneys. I'm not sure what it, it is. It is so a green and pleasant land. Probably, probably a little so bit warmer this year for smoke to be coming and out. And Tasmania, we're talking uh, the population of just on half a million people. Yeah. Uh, but I think its its key um, gift is that it's it's virtually untouched. It doesn't have that industrial areas it doesn't have the high rise and, and all that sort yeah. of thing it's, it's been kept uh, you know almost frozen in time but in a you know in a modern way i love the sense that i love the the kind of psyche of the place because uh you know hobart is a really cool town there's a lot of stuff happening there uh just over the course of a few days we saw a lot of live music saw brand new breweries opening uh, amazing restaurants some of the best restaurants i've been to for, for quite a while and all that's happening uh, in this place where you kind of kind of feels like you're on the edge of the earth because you go out south from there and there's nothing there's to interact. Nothing with. Nothing you and so it was really nice being kind of on the edge. Uh, I thought there was a real sort of spark to that that I, I really enjoyed. Did you get to the Cascade Brewery? I didn't know. You didn't no, drive past. Oh, um, not having I saw the building as much as you. Oh, you so you yeah. drove past it? Yeah. Because it, it really is a jewel. Um, it, it's owned by SAB Miller these days, and I, I think they underuse it as a facility. But in terms of picturesque breweries, so many breweries uh, are just stainless steel beer mm. farms. Um, and for all that, that we want to give beer a sense of place and a sense of you know, the, that sort of feeling that wineries have, it's one of the few places the way that nestles in, in that little fold below Mount Franklin. Mount Wellington. Mount Wellington, yeah. sorry, I knew it and, and it's just one of those beautiful breweries. So, so you did get a chance to drive past it? Yeah, yeah, stunning building. Can you think of many more scenic, or your, what, what sort of scenic breweries are there in the world that you've seen that, that uh, are like that? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, there aren't many that spring to mind, really. Um, you've got to go, I think you've got to go, in Europe anyway, kind of almost medieval. Yeah, I mean, you're probably looking you know, into a like, Czech Republic, or, yeah, Pilsen yeah, yeah. or something sort of, like that. Yeah. And, and I don't say that sort of getting that sort of. Um, Self-conscious Australian wanting to sort of uh, reaffirming praise or anything. Like that. I'm, I'm genuinely interested because it just is a, such a scenic uh, you know, uh, brewery. But I think I think it, it's it's by by virtue of what we're talking about about it being kind of unspoiled and and, and out of the way. Uh, someone like Burton on Trent in England used to have so many beautiful breweries like that, but it got to the 1960s and the industry had modernised, and there was simply no need for these buildings anymore, and. You can look back at it and go, why didn't they preserve them? But at the time they were uh, demolished, they were dangerous. They were, they'd been in disuse for 30, 40 years. 
they were falling oh, apart. Yeah. The that was falling long before we heard terms like adaptive reuse or anything yeah. like that, which we yeah. to, to preserve them. But and uh, so you, you look, you see the old, old uh, engravings from 140, 50 years ago, and you look, you think, well, this is just poetry, visual poetry of brewing, and you think, well, we just bulldoze the whole lot. But I remember I you talking about that in Lands of Land of Hops and Glory, yeah, and uh, yeah. I was very surprised because Burton is a synonymous with ales. And that they've all, and they were huge breweries in those days as well, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. It's all it's, it's a giant modern lager brewery now. <laughs> the whole of Burton is a giant modern lager factory, which is a bit of a shame. There's a lovely little uh, tower brewery, uh, Victorian tower brewery in the middle, um, that belongs to Molson Coors, but Molson Coors kind of hardly remember that they own it. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy, this guy was in there. The, the guy I brewed my beer with, Fox and Glory, uh, had been brewing in there for years and years and years. Uh, the CEO of Molson Coors UK, his office was 30 yards away from this brewery and he'd never visited it. And then when the whole kind of cascale uh, craft beer thing happened, he was like, hang on a minute, doesn't that old guy in the middle of the yard brew something like this? And suddenly the whole apparatus of Molson Coors UK was focused on this little guy. It's like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and they sort of invested and... Uh, and built up this kind of ale brewery again. But yeah, there's, there's not much. You must have seen monumental change um, since. So you've been running for uh, uh, about beer, making a move from advertising yeah. for beer and writing about beer uh, uh, 11, 12 years ago? Yeah, I mean, that transition took a long time. Um, I think anybody who decides to write a book spends about three years telling people they're writing a book. Uh, before they actually start doing it. So is that about the time that somebody calls you on it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and after I've been working on this book for uh, what about two years, uh, I met my wife, and uh, she was very excited to go out with a writer and all this kind of stuff. And it, 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 it sounds great writers. until I see your bank balance. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and then um, you haven't written a book in three and a half years. And then uh, I kept saying how I was. Yeah, I was working in advertising at the time. I kept saying I was writing this book, and she believed in the idea of the book and. Uh, about a year later, I was still talking about how I was writing this book, and she said, look, somebody else is, if you don't get this book done, somebody else is going to come out with the same idea, and if they do that, I'm just telling you now that I won't be able to live with you, because <laughs> you're going to be so insufferable that someone else beat you to it. So I suggest you, you get your arse in gear and start writing it. And, uh, and so then there was about two years proper, and that book came out in 2003. So that was, when, that was the start of my real writing career, even though there's five years of me dabbling. Uh, 2003 is when it got serious and uh, the first book came out and led to this huge lifestyle career change that's, that's brought me here now. But one of the things that really, uh, you know, I've sort of been a sort of huge fan from afar, um, reading your books, both reading your books and reading your blog back when you probably had more time for blogging. Yes. We'll get to why you've got uh, such less time for, for writing, but for somebody that had grown up selling, and, and, and you loved um, brands like Stella Artois, mm. and then you almost got this sense of that they betrayed you in some way. That's that, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there was uh, two things happened. One was um, what first attracted me to writing about beer wasn't, I mean, this was craft beer in America was happening, we had real ale in the UK, um, but what first attracted me to beer was the beer culture. It was, the, it was what beer did to people. Not get them pissed, but it was it was how beer brought people together, and I was fascinated by pub culture. I was fascinated from what I saw in advertising, the way that 
when we start talking about beer brands in research focus groups, people would get so passionate about their brand loyalty. And um, I thought, why is this? Why are pubs so important in society? And that's what first brought me into writing about beer. And an interest in the flavour and the ingredients didn't come until a good few years later. Uh, and by that time, uh, as I learned to taste and my palate developed and everything else, while that was happening, uh, the AB InBev merger happened. And I, I've, I've dealt with all the main global brewers and to varying lesser degrees, um, people like Carlsberg, Heineken, uh, SAB Miller, there are people in those corporations who actually do care about beer. Uh, and there are people who do drink beer and are, and are enthusiastic about it. They just don't work in the market, they do part of <laughs> <laughs> One or two of them do. But, it, but, but they're hidebound by these systems because they're such huge corporations. Uh, if someone in the marketing department says, we need to bring out a craft beer and we need to make it, it needs to have some integrity and it needs to have some, some depth and some proper flavour to it, those people genuinely are there. But by the time it comes through the system at the other end, you, you don't recognise it. It's it, yeah. it, it, it's uh, We need to pretend this beer has <laughs> exactly. integrity. Um, but but AB InBev are, um, are the exception to the rule. They don't give a crap about beer. It might as well be dog food or, or biscuits or toilet roll to them. To them, beer is product. And product is made up of costs, and costs need to be cut. And so, yeah, I felt totally betrayed by Stella Artois and, uh, and, and those brands. I, I felt like... I was genuinely in love with that beer, and it walked away from me, and it fell in with the wrong crowd. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, You've changed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he used to be a good bloke. <laughs> but that's a, in in that sense, because beer, we, and I've never really understood what it is that we are so passionate about beer, with so little underpinning knowledge about it, because it it, it is a brand. Yeah. But in that sense brewers have made a rod for their own back and sometimes beer comes back to bite them on their own ass when they um, they, they tell you that it matters because it's made with pure sort of Belgian water or it's made with mm. such and such and then suddenly you find out that's not true uh, or they, they suddenly yeah. change it and we had um, VB in, in Australia which was one in four beers sold in, a, um, yeah. in Australia 10-12 years ago was VB and then they started playing around with it and telling you that it was the most important beer and they took it to 4.8 and then 4.6. Yeah. Um, and people were saying, well, how special is it if you can mess around with it like that? And so that just sort of uh, blind brand loyalty mm. can come back and when you start, you, you, you can really uh, damage your brand by tinkering with that. I think so, and I think this is what, uh, this is what whether they recognise it or not, this is what craft beer is teaching uh, the big brewers. Uh, that it's not about, I don't think people really respond to these big flash marketing messages anymore. It's, it's almost the wrong thing to do with beer. And when I first started working on beer advertising, beer ads were the best thing on television. You made these 30 second pieces of comedy gold with, with a product at the end. And if it was a really good ad, the product itself was the punchline to the gag. So that it, you didn't just remember the, the ad, you actually remembered the, the brand name as well. You can't really make those ads anymore. Regulations have tightened. We live in a very paranoid, frightened uh, world at the moment uh, where every sip of alcohol is going to murder you and your kids. Uh, so you can't make those kind of ads anymore. But we live in a fractured media environment as well where you don't all gather around the same TV programs anymore. And when you look at the way craft beer, by virtue of necessity, because they don't have these huge multi-million pound budgets, uh, when you see... What we've seen, what I've seen in the last 10 years is the emergence of meet the brewer events, tap takeovers, 
converse, proper conversations on social media where you have brewers talking to the people who drink their beers. And, okay, what, do you th what hops do you think we should put in our beer next time? And you see these incred incredibly loyal brand relationships. I've not checked for a few years, but last time I did, people like uh, Greg Cook at uh, Stone in California had more Twitter followers on his personal account than Guinness, Stella Artois, Heineken, or Carlsberg on their global Twitter But feed. at the same time, that's coming back and biting them on the ass when they start getting too big. And Ooh. you know, we're starting Ooh. to see, you know, um, we're about the beer, we're not about the, the business sort of thing. And suddenly, these are big corporations and people are starting, yeah. and so the whole definition of craft is starting to fall by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, and that's all of the conversation. I mean, the, I think, uh, I think, you see a lot of people at the moment saying saying craft as a word is ruined. I don't think it's ruined. I think it's maybe starting to have outlived its usefulness. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's been corrupted and poisoned and degraded. I just think it was useful for a while and maybe it's not useful anymore. Uh, because it's impossible to define. How can you define craft? Uh, I was at Stone and Wood's Pilot Brewery yesterday. I don't think anyone would argue that Stone and Wood is craft beer. It's, it's beautiful craft beer. It's well made. Uh, traditional ingredients, real dedication. I've rarely seen such passion. Um, but but they have a computer controlled brew house, so therefore they're not craft beer. It's like, of course they're craft beer. Well, it's just just that you haven't got someone shoveling out the uh, the mustard at the end of it. It's well, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, is, is craft the level of automation or is craft the passion? Do you have to look into the brewer's heart to determine what their true intention? Well, that's is? where I get to it. Someone someone working for a, a consultancy working for Diageo who own Guinness, and we're sitting here on St. Patrick's Day, so it's quite appropriate. Um, <laughs> and drinking anything with Guinness. <laughs> drinking anything with Guinness. But, but, but you know, if, you know, if you go back 100 years, the two most popular um, best-selling brands of beer in the world were Guinness and Bass, uh, a stout and an IPA. So the whole idea that we don't like big flavour is, is, an entire, is yeah. a complete fallacy, because for most of our drinking history, we were drinking those kind of beers. And Guinness has this store of knowledge and this expertise. Guinness should be making the best porters and stouts in the world. They should be making better porters and stouts than any other brewer. And they're not. So this consultant said to me, could Guinness make craft beer? I said, yeah. And he said, okay, what would they have to do to make craft beer? Would they have to kind of set up a separate business and pretend it wasn't part of Guinness? So I said, no, no, no. All you've got to do to make craft beer at Guinness is let the brewer have free reign, let him design a recipe that he wants to do that's based on his gut and his instinct and his, and his palate uh, or hers. Uh, let them brew that beer, don't let the accountants interfere with the cost of the ingredients, don't let the marketers interfere with how it's brought to market, punt it out to a few bars in Dublin, see how it does. And do they said, oh, I couldn't do that. And I said, well, you can't make craft beer then. But do you, do you think that's all it is? Because uh, uh, brewers are the most passionate people, whether they work for the big brewers or the small brewers, they are really passionate about the liquid that they make. But then, the number of brewers I've met who, uh, you know, from, from big breweries who have come up through the micro microbiology department or something like that, and they haven't got into it from the brewing side. They've just yeah. seen that as a career progression. And their, t their personal tastes are shaped by that and then yeah. the cleanliness and, and, and those yeah. sorts of things. And even when you give um, uh, a lot of those brewers a drink, they can pick the fundamental flaws in a um, light-flavoured lager. Yeah. Um, and then they'll pick the unbalanced bitterness in, in a craft beer. Yeah. But well, we had a big incident a couple of years ago where one of the big brewers who were playing our barrel aging released a beer that was inadvertently um, Brett 
infected. Yeah. And they didn't pick that. They thought that that was sulfur because they weren't trained in those things. Um, yeah. Is it as simple as just giving the, the brewers the control of the... Uh, well, it's got to be the right brewer, hasn't it? Uh, it's got to be the right member of the team. I mean, if you, if, you, if you come up through that way and you're a trained production brewer, you're probably not the guy who's going... Let me make a proper uh, imperial uh, okay stout. Yeah. But uh, but I think I think the best example of what I'm talking about is at Carlsberg, where they have this range of beers called Jakobsen, and every brewer, not everyone participates as far as I know. But for those who are interested, once a month you get a chance to just go free reign uh, and create any beer you want, and it does the rounds inside, and all the other brewers taste it. They maybe put it in a few restaurants. Um, and if it goes down well, they'll release it as part of the Atkinson range. And, and all those, those beers are brewed by, you know, big corporate brewers who, who've got that passion. Uh, so I think um, you can't generalise. I think that's, that, that's probably the best rule of, of all of this is that you can't generalise. Uh, people keep saying things like, you know, as soon as, as, soon as Camden Town gets bought by uh, ABI, it's like, oh, does that mean all the big craft, all the big craft brewers are going to get bought now? No, of course it doesn't. It means some of them are, some of them aren't, some of them are going to go under, some of them are going to prosper, some of them are going to hand it over to the kids. So I think, yeah, don't generalise is, 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 is my... The thing I try to keep in my head when I'm sort of uh, casting a critical eye over the world of beer at the moment. In terms of culture and, and history, Pete, I've always seen the beer as, as one very important part of it, but the pub as being almost an equal, equally important part, and, and together you get something yeah. that's, that's greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to do uh, lots of beer dinners, and the ones that, that I do in, in like in little country pubs, where it's just it's 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 that proper community sort of feel, and that's when you realise, I guess, what we're missing. With and here in Australia, it's it's the pokies, and it's it's people, you know, yeah. a group of ten people go out to then sit and watch a screen individually and and pull a, a handle for an hour. Uh, or it's you know an RSL, it's a pub tab, or yeah. um, the horse racing, and you know whatever it might be. Is it? Do you think getting back to that, bringing us back to the pub, is also I guess part of, of how we? I think I think we have an instinctive. Going? I think we have an instinctive pull back to that. So uh, I'm over the next twelve months. I'm publishing three new books, and, and one of these books is is a look at the English pub. Or the British pub, and um, it's the, the, and it's called oddly enough. It's called the pub. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the pub. I think it's Inspired. like a, a cultural institution or something like that. Yep. Is the is the subtitle, and um, you know it's got great great old historic pubs that Shakespeare used to drink in. It's got superb craft beer pubs, all, all this kind of stuff. But but the common thread through the book is pubs that have great pub atmosphere. That that's what gets you in. Uh, there's at least one pub in that book where the beer is among the worst I've ever tasted. Uh, but the food and the atmosphere created by the live bands meant that Makes it was a special it. pub, yep. you know. Uh, most of them have great beer. Um, but I think I think that, that special pub in us, we pulled back to it. So I had to write a piece on the future of the pub. Uh, does the pub have a future in, in Britain? Because pubs are closing at a terrifying rate. And, um, and when I looked at the trends... That I see, where I see the green shoots in the future of the pub. Uh, there's the craft beer bar, which is all about, um, you know, really great beer, sampling the beer. It's not about big screens and that kind of stuff. It's about conversation over beer. Uh, there's uh, one. There's a scheme that a brewer in the Midlands, a brewer called Everards, has done, where they take um, defunct pubs, failed pubs, refurbish them, and reopen them in conjunction with a microbrewer. 
uh, and they say, okay, this is your brewery, it's out for your microbrewery, you have free reign on Cascale, put all your own products on there, all we ask is that in return for us refurbishing the pub and being your landlord, you buy all your soft drinks, your wines, your spirits through us. And that's working really well to bring pubs back. And then you've got this new thing called the Micropub, which is real enthusiasts taking over old shops, estate agents, butchers, things like that, turning them into like a little shop-sized pub where you've just got a few beers on, uh, maybe a few bags of crisps, and uh, it, it opens when the guy feels like opening it, and it's just kind of a lo local community of friends, really. And all those three trends, all the three things that I think are exciting in British pubs at the moment, are all refocusing the idea of the pub around good beer and good conversation and strip away all the other bollocks. And I thought, isn't that funny? You know, this is what the book's been for hundreds of years. And, and we're just rediscovering it as if it's something yeah. a, new, a new thing. And three totally divergent trends that look very different initially are all about good beer and good chat. And that's, that's where it is. That's and it, it is. is there still, because uh, um, there was a lot written about, uh, I guess, you know, the, 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 you're walking into Tesco's or whatever it would be and you'd have the loss leader, you'd have you know, yeah. just a, yeah, a, a pallet of chat. And people go, well, why would I go to the pub if I can get, uh, works at yeah. 50p? for a 500ml tin of something, I'll go yeah. home and I'll, I've got Sky Sports or whatever so I can watch the football, um, I don't need to go to the pub yeah. as much anymore. Are we kind of saying, well, those guys, yeah, that's fine, but not everyone wanted that? I think, I think, I think people don't want that all the time. So, so maybe, so in the UK now, 20 years ago, the average Brit used to go to the pub once a week. Now the average Brit goes to the pub once a month. Right. Um, when they're not in the pub, they're at home with their cans, or they're, or they're drinking less. They're actually in the coffee shop, or they're they're in the gym, you know. But when they go to the pub once a month, because they're only going once a month, the pub has a higher expectation that it needs to deliver on. It's like, oh, this is my pub night. You know, I, 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 I go to the pub every day, and I walk in and out of the pub and don't notice it. Uh, but that's oh, Friday. That's that's when we're going to the pub, and if the pub doesn't deliver. It's like, well, that wasn't very good. And so they go into the pub because they want to be in the pub. Uh, because they want the banter, they want the atmosphere, they want the whole experience. And what it probably means is, yeah, they're not going to drink Stella Artois or Foster's while they're there. They're going to drink something they can't get in the supermarket. And, they, and they're prepared to pay five, six pounds a pint for it because, well, it's the only night month, one night a month that we're here. And so you're seeing a night at the pub becoming a special occasion. Um, uh, and it's a rare occasion, it's a treat. Uh, and so I think it's changing from being a kind of everyday occurrence to being a, a special yeah. yeah. So, so what's the English craft beer drinker like? I mean, I'd, Australia seems to have followed a little, well, everywhere's in excess, I probably shouldn't typify, but there is the hip stuff in, yeah. in, in Australia. Does, does, Absolutely. They, they, they do. So to describe, you know, paint a word portrait of <laughs> the uh, London hipster, for example. I'm sure it's very similar to the uh, to the hipster in Fitzroy in Melbourne. Uh, I've spent a couple of days there. They certainly look very similar. Uh, lots of ornate beards, lots of product in those beards, uh, making them look lustrous and shiny. Yep. Uh, lots of baseball caps and tattoos. Uh, and hipster, hipster being one of those curious things where no one will say, hey, look, I'm a hipster. So I, I've, got, I've, I've, I've spoken to bar, I've spoken to bar to bar managers uh, who are there with these magnificent, resplendent, two foot long beards and tats and everything else. They look like an old German beer competition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And, uh, and they'll be there going, "Oh yeah, it was great, great here until last night." And then all these bloody hipsters came in, <laughs> and you're like, 
but you get so you get that thing. Um, I think it's too again it's too easy to, to, to generalise. I think those guys are drinking craft beer. It's part of this, um, and they're very visible. They're very visible. Yeah. Yes, that's a really good point. Um, but they're drinking craft beer as part of a lifestyle choice where everything has to be off grid. It has to be kind of this wasn't chosen for me. We think we're being alternative. That kind of stuff. And they're easy to pillory, but I think if I was 20 years younger, I think I'd probably be like that as well, you know. I think I'm a bit jealous that... All, How all old these, are you, Pete? Sorry, just... I'm 47. I'm 47. Same age, so 69? Yeah, 68. Uh, 68. Pete's yeah. uh, a couple of 64. years older, 64, yeah. so... But I, I guess our nearest equivalent would have been the yuppie of the... Yeah, we had a really rubbish... Yeah, I think a lot of people are actually just really jealous because, <laughs> because this popular movement at the moment is actually cooler than Something what we had as far as we did. It's actually more tasteful than what we were into, and it's like, oh, you bastards. <laughs> I hate you for that. I hate the fact that you're young, and you get all these beers and all these amazing burgers and all these really cool bars when you're still young. You don't deserve this. You know? So I think that's my, where, the, where the vitriol against dipsters come from. Uh, but, but they're not the only ones. Um, they're not the only craft beer people. They came to craft beer quite late, I think. Uh, I think you can date them back to sort of 2010, 2011. Uh, and certainly in the UK, craft beer was doing pretty well by that time, you know. Uh, you've got your beer geeks. I think there's now a big overlap between hipsters and beer geeks, but they are two separate tribes. And and what I'm seeing now is craft beer starting to, well, it's, I, I've, it's about two and a half years since I started to talk about craft beer going mainstream. And I think there are now sort of different waves of it. There's different uh, phases of craft beer. So if you think about a hoppy pale ale made with North American hops, I'd say that is pretty mainstream now. Um, and you could say, well, anyone's drinking that. When I go to the pub now with a bunch of mates who are not beer people, that's what they're drinking. They're drinking a 5% pale ale made with Cascade and Citra hops. And they actually know that they're drinking a beer with Cascade and Citra hops in it. And they're not interested in beer. But that's but that's the benchmark now. Yeah. That's the that's where the mainstream's got. To. And that's almost the definition of mainstream. I don't care about it, but I just know about it. Yeah, yeah. And then the beer geeks and the hipsters, they're now drinking saisons, uh, uh, billet of ices, uh, sours, that kind of thing. Going, okay, let's see this go mainstream. You know, kind of clinging on to this kind of more <laughs> difficult flavour. Uh, so you've got these waves of craft beer now, and, and I think in in the UK, some of the some of the brewers that have been um, uh, swallowed up by the big guys. Uh, I think they're, I, again, if it wasn't ABI, I'd be much happier, but, but they're the kind of gateway to craft beer. Uh, they're nice, approachable brands. They're nice, approachable beers. They're not scary. Uh, and they're encouraging my wife's mates to drink craft beer, which is great whether you call it craft beer or not, whether it counts as craft beer or not. They're drinking beer, whereas otherwise they'd have been drinking wine five years ago. So I think there's a, a much broader audience now than there used to be, definitely. Camden Town, too, um just to, to pick a, as an example, when they sort of first started, were very clearly saying, we, we don't want to do sours and, and mm. saisons. We're actually going to do lagers because that's what a lot of people like drinking. But we're going yeah. to give them a choice of lagers and we're going to make interesting lagers. We're going to make a, you know, a dark lager. I'm going to give them a hellas yeah. style. I'm going to, you know, in a, in a way, I, I guess. I an India Kolsch ale today. An India Kolsch <laughs> ale? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> an ickle. <laughs> That's never going to be a thing. No, it's from New Zealand. It was a, a Renaissance brewery. I'm um, sure it's Kolsch actually ale. quite nice, but I just, it's the name. Is it but, but, but are we ever going to re reach the point? There's a couple of very mad guys at Renaissance. There's so the two names that they, they, they put yeah. together. Just, uh, I mean, India Pale, uh, a black pale ale. Yeah. Is mutually exclusive. 
Yeah. But it's all description. You know, can you have something like an India Kolsch, which are sort of opposite ends of the... If nothing um, else, it's achieved the purpose of us talking yeah. about it. So I guess that yeah, would be that's right. true. Um, we'll send you Quite the check, them. guys. <laughs> so, sorry, but you're halfway through a question. Um, and, it's only, yeah. and it was only recently they sort of did a pale ale. So is that kind of, I guess, inspired thinking that, the, that we say, OK, well, we're going to be in the craft space, but you know what? Mainstream drinkers, where for you as well? Well, this brings me around to this idea that I'm playing a lot with at the moment about... Uh, craft beer and beer styles, and I say beer styles reluctantly because I don't want to get to the American conversation about which which of the 190 different beer styles things are in. Um, Because I think think most people, when you say craft beer to most people, they'll think IPA, or they'll they'll sort of think hop forward. And uh, craft beer to me uh, is is Trappist beer, is, is English Best Bitter, uh, is Hellas, what? is Kolsch, Kolsch is, yeah. you know, they're the, they're the uncompromised, unsullied, excellent this beer styles from around the world. And, have and, and if you talk to an American craft brewer, they will say, well, yeah, we're doing big hoppy pale ales because that's what we can do. But if we could be brewing Kolsch's and British Royal Ale and American Trappist beers, we would be, you know, and they're, they're trying, you know, they, they do. They're, they're, they're taking those styles and interpreting them. Um, and I think what I'd like to see happening in craft beer now is get away from this idea that craft beer is new and American and, and go beyond that and recognise what the Americans are trying to tell us, which is that, no, no, craft beer is a good beer. Um, that it, that, and, and it happens all around the world. And start to celebrate the variety of styles that are there. I, mean, I was in Bamberg last November and sitting in beer kellers there and drinking a, a Keller beer versus a Hellas versus a Pilsner, yep. three lagers. And they were as different as a, you know, a stout and a, and a pale ale and a, and a best bitter, you know. It was just like, there were such different beers and there were such excellent beers. They're like, this is craft beer. Uh, and it's not hoppy, or it is, but you know, it's not massively American hop forward, but it's just it, beautiful beer. It's funny you say that though, because when I first discovered beer 13 or 14 years ago, you know, I grew up, um, we, we had, during that yuppie, time of the, the late 80s, we had a number of craft brewers spring up, but it was always a Pilsner or a, like a, a lager, uh, maybe a wheat beer, an English bitter, um, and maybe a stout, and mm. th- th- that was the beer styles there were. But if you developed a bit of an interest about beer, then you could get Shimmer, um, mm. or you could get um, you know, some of the German Hefeweizens, or, uh, and they were your, your lifeblood for a long time. And then with the growth of craft beer, suddenly there was no market for these classic beer styles. Yeah, um, yeah. And I noticed, you know, th- th- there's no such thing as something that, sh- that is the definitive beer style, but that was what I developed my palate on. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that anyone that's discovered beer, say, in the last three or four years, um, for them it's all about hops or what I call almost cartoonish versions of beer styles. So any Hefeweizen has to be a banana bomb or yeah. a, anything and that to them is craft beer and when they try these subtle styles um, mm. a, a Brisbane beer blogger described the Stonewood um, Pilsner as an approachable Pilsner and to, to me it was like, <laughs> as if there's anything well, coming to <laughs> yeah. so, so, as, oh, it's only got 40 IBUs you know geez. <laughs> well hold on 
That's not an approachable Pilsner. That's a Pilsner. That is a Pilsner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so Pilsner. beautiful bready malt character, lovely yeah. uh, flavor. And anyone that's, yeah, so not anyone, but people that maybe have come to craft beer in the last, to the excitement of craft beer in the last few years, have had their perceptions of what beer is shaped yeah. by what's popular then. But I've been on that flavour journey myself. Mm. I, we all have. We all have, I think. And I think it's a cycle. I think most people go through it uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, I talked earlier about how I was muscling to be a culture and then flavour came later. Flavour came when I was writing my book in 2004, Three Sheets of the Wind, my second book, which is a global tour of beer culture. And just before I started doing the serious travel for that, I went on a foundation beer tasting course and learned, was, was taught what flavours to look for uh, for the first time. And the day after that, I went to Brussels, to, to Belgium for the first time ever. So it's like having had my senses opened, I then landed in Brussels and was presented with lambics and Trappist ales for the first time, and my head exploded. You know, <laughs> it was just like being let loose in a sweet shop. And I had a few months of just being blissfully in love with, with Belgian beers. And then, for the next chapter of the book, I went to America for the first, well, not for the first time, I went to America with a beer mission for the first time. I ended up in Portland, tasted my first North American IPA, and that was it. The slate was wiped clean. In, in the book, I wrote about it being... I was tasting in colour for the first time, realising that I'd been tasting in black and white for my entire life. Even with Belgian beers? I, I mean, I was kind of, I kind of forgot about the Belgian beers, that's the thing. And, and I just went off on this hop trail, you know, just looking for hoppier and hoppier beers. Until one Christmas I found a 750ml bottle of Chimay Blue at the back of my uh, cellar, covered in dust, uh, two years after its best before date. I thought, oh, I could use this in this carbonade I'm making um, for New Year's Eve dinner. And I, I thought, I'll just pour some out first, just to test it's not vinegar. And I sipped it and just, oh, just almost wept. It was moments, so beautiful. Yeah. And I've just written an article about this, saying that I've just fallen in love with Belgian beer for the fourth time, or maybe it's the fifth, because <laughs> you, you forget. But, but you, go on, you go on that hop journey, and then you get, you get to a point where you realise it's a bit one-dimensional. I think you start craving balance and you come back and you rediscover. I'm, I'm big on rediscovering lager at the moment. Uh, the, 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 the finesse of it and, and the balance and the, and, and the delicacy of it, uh, which is, uh, you know, the result of having a, a more refined palate, I think. I, I get myself into trouble all the time by saying that I'm not a hop head. I, I, you know, I, again, been through it, I've done it. How much hops can I stand? But I've always found that you know, hops just aren't a great match for food, for example. Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. I, and, and whenever I do beer dinners, it, it tends to be the malt and the yeast mm. are the ones I find that have that finesse and the subtlety that really, because hops just go over everything. Yeah, you, you can find the matches for hops, but then they're, they're never the best ones, are they? Mm. You know, you, get, you can go, okay, that's big and punchy, let's put some massively spicy food up against it or some really strong cheese. And every now and again, you'll get one. But I think even then, the beer that really works in that situation, it might be a very hoppy beer, but it's a big beer all round. It's got the malt base there to counter and, and, and balance the hops. So it's a big beer, mm. but it's not a one-dimensional hoppy beer. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. And 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been, even been, we would have been poo-pooed for talking about matching beer with food. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Very, very don't, don't you mean why? Now, a couple of questions, and we, we, we probably need to not, not so much pay your bills or anything like that and sort of talk about the, the, the sponsor, but... Um, now, one of the phrases, and, I've, and I know that I've pinched it from you, but beer is the most sociable beer in the world, 
Was that one that you coined, or did you get that from somewhere, or is that just your innate? The most sociable drink in the world. Yeah, I think I coined Sorry, that. Yeah. I think I think I coined that. Uh, whenever I say it, that I have, someone will point to someone else saying it three years before, but but I, I didn't consciously yeah. lift it from anybody. If, if you certainly popularised it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it and it was and that was the result of me spending 2004 going to all the big beer drinking countries in the world and seeing. Um, Beer styles being completely different, beer, beer drinking places being completely different, beer styles being completely different. But it didn't matter where you went, as soon as you saw people together with a beer, whether you were in a hut in Kenya or, a, or at the top of a high-rise block in Tokyo or wherever, the beer moment was the same. Uh, and, and the rituals around beer were designed to bring people together over beer. Uh, and it was communal and it was shared. And, and, and then I realised that that went right back through history, through the history of civilization. Uh, and so that that was my passion, kind of in full vent at that point. And, and it's whether if we're whether we're celebrating or commiserating, it's always yeah, it, and everything in between. It's always exactly. cheers. So there's a, there's a great story that I always use when I'm talking about this, uh, which is some engravings in the British Museum show ancient Babylonian the drinking straws. Yeah. Mm. So so there are people with what look like wine goblets, and they're sitting with their individual wine goblets. And then there are people around these big communal uh, uh, jugs with these long straws. And examining these things, and, and you get your archaeological evidence of these shows that you know wine was in the, uh, the, the goblets and beer was in the big communal uh, jugs. And it's like, all oh, right, obviously, what we can tell from that is that uh, wine was a drink for rich people uh, and beer was a drink for poor people, so they all had to share. Except Tutankhamun had a gold exactly straw. exactly when they found and King Midas they, they found yeah. these golden uh, beer jugs encrusted with jewels and the straws were silver and it's like oh it's not that um, it was for, for the poor people to drink like that it's that you, that's how you drink beer because beer is communal shared I mean, my, my personal reading of that and I, I, I don't think that I've actually read this anywhere or it's been a combination of a number of things I've read is that you can only make wine once a year. Um, mm. If you go back 8,000 years, the grapes ripened and you made wine and you drank it because you didn't have the ability to preserve mm. it throughout the year and if you're living a semi-nomadic existence. Whereas beer, once we realised that you could grow grain and store it, you could make beer 365 days of the year. So mm. what, you know, even in, and I can never remember the name of the king, but one of the greatest um, feasts that's ever been described in, in, in literature, it was a Sumerian king who talked about the amount of beer that he had but taking even greater um, uh, preference in the, in the writing was this wine that had been brought in from the uh, from Turkey um, because you couldn't make wine anywhere, you couldn't make wine, and so wine has always had that cachet yeah, that has yeah. kept it apart, that has made it seem a little bit different, and there's been this whole industry that has grown up around justifying that price, whereas beer, yeah. um, as, as much as everyone likes it and it reaches from bottom to the top of the society, you can make it every day and you can enjoy it every day. Um, yeah. And it seems to have been one of those things that... Um, you still get that now. So I've been judging I've been judging the BBC Radio 4 Food and Farming Awards for the past few years, Best, best Drinks Producer. And because of climate change, one of the few benefits of that is that you, there are now some seriously good wine makers in, in Kent, in southeastern England, because uh, the climate's changed, so you now grow good grapes there. Um, but. The, the judges that I've been working with on that, they're from the wine side, kind of envious of beer because they say, well, okay, there are new, these new vineyards springing up and the only person who could open a new vineyard 
is someone who's made a lot of money working in the city. All the people owning new vineyards are hedge fund managers uh, who, who want to spend their millions. And when they decide to do that, they find the ground to grow the grapes. That takes a long time. And then it's about seven years uh, that they have to invest and build a company uh, that, that they have to keep running before the first vintage comes out. You want to open a brewery, you find a disused railway arch in East London. Stop <laughs> you, you buy some hops, you buy some barley, and you're away. You know. And even that fundamentally changes, um, because whilst beer may not have been able to, you know, 100 years ago, you couldn't send beer anywhere you wanted to, grain, you can have the ability to be sent around. And so yeah, English yeah. grains were sent to Australia, and you could make, uh, and, and hops, and you could make beer. Absolutely. Uh, whereas wine, you couldn't send the grapes, so you could only grow the grapes uh, where, 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 where they were. And there are just fundamental differences between yeah. beer and wine. So, so beer, beer, is, beer does have this tension that it, it is a more democratic everyday drink than wine is. And that means a lot of people think, well, that means it can't be special. It's like, although it can be special, it, you know, it, it just there are special versions of it, but it is every day. And I think that that tension there is the uh, uh, an important one at the crux of craft beer. It's like, well, the motto for this podcast is wine is a lecture, beer is a conversation, because it just it, it is to us the, the, the difference um, between it. But now you, you talked about your three books. Um, we, we talked about the pub. You've got a cider book that. Probably in a beer podcast, we won't spend too much. But just give us a little bit of an overview because cider is, you know, there, there are a lot of overlaps between cider in, in the modern world. Yeah. I mean, I started writing about cider because people said, uh, people were asking me for articles about cider. And I said, why are you asking me? And they said, because you're a beer writer. And I said, exactly. And I said, well, it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? I was like, well, well no. <laughs> it's not. It's, made, it's, not it's completely different. It, it, cider is closer to wine than it is to beer in terms of how it's made and, and the principles behind it. So I thought I'd better learn a little bit about it. So uh, in the process of learning about it, uh, I realized that all the great uh, World Encyclopedia of Beer, World Atlas of Wine, uh, a guide to coffee around the world, everything you can think of has had its World Encyclopedia or its World Guide and no one's known one on cider. And the reason no one's done one on cider is that everywhere that makes cider in the world thinks that it is the only place in the world that makes cider. <laughs> Ciders in these bizarre little enclaves, uh, remote parts of various different countries. And so me and my friend Bill, who's uh, been photographing cider for about a decade, uh, decided to do the first ever World Guide to Cider. So uh, that was great fun. And off the back of that, I'm now at, I've now just written a book about apples and orchards and the the spirituality of orchards and the wheel of the year and, and how it ties us to, to the countryside. So I, th I, think, I think beer has become a very industrial urban drink. I think breweries tend to be in built up spaces and cider makers tend to be in the countryside. And immediately people would say, well, which one do you prefer? Which one's best? It's like, well, no, the whole point is you need both. You need a balance. You need a balance between urban and rural. You need a balance between online conversations and offline conversations. And, and now when I go to an orchard, I still spend most of my time um, writing about beer. I, I probably, I would say nine of every 10 drinks I have is beer versus one is cider. Uh, but when I get to an orchard, my breathing slows, my blood pressure goes down, I relax, my smile gets broader, and I need that in my life. So it's, it's nice to have both. But is, is the biggest threat to, to cider being seen as, I guess, a partner to beer? Uh, in a way, is it the um, you know cheap dehydrated Chinese concentrate? Uh, Cider's always had this. Cider's always had this anchor of sort of cheap and 
nasty. Yeah. Uh, cider, cider, commercial cider is made from cheap apple concentrate, uh, and that cheap apple concentrate will be a, a small minority of the ingredients in that. Uh, in the UK, they just brought in hard new rules about how much apple juice you've got to have in your cider. 35%. Before you can call it. Before you call it cider. Yeah. So you can have 60, 65% of your what's in your glass can be any old crap that the producer doesn't have to tell you what it is. Well, it's still 35% better than we've got in Australia because right. at the moment you can bring anything in and call it cider. Yeah. But you can label it cider under the existing laws. And I think cider was very exciting when we wrote the book. And I think cider is at the point of being killed by, by this cheap shit that, yeah. that people insist on calling cider. Because um, it makes it very hard to, to ask for eight dollars a pint or whatever it might be. Yeah. But hang on, I can get a six pack for that. Yeah, so that, and that's what I'm finding now with, with proper good artisanal cider makers who come in and say, "Well, this is made from the apples in my orchard. Uh, this is made from three different varieties of apple. Uh, one is bittersweet, one is bitter sharp. Then I've got some kind of eating apple in there just to give it this kind of roundness of texture. It's like, mate, I've got Ricardlig over here for half the price. It's like. Yeah. Or whichever brand <laughs> well, uh, you yeah. might, you know. Record League is two or three times the price here. Really? Because it's taxed as an alcopop. It's, yeah. Um, because it's, well, it's it is an alcopop. Yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. Yeah. So it's not people signed. still, I mean, but, but great beer venues like this still sell a shitload of Record League. As a flagship yeah. cider. And, it, you know, it, it, yeah. it's, it's 9 or 10 $12 a bottle because yeah. it's imported. Yeah. But the last time we spoke to you, Pete, we were talking about crowdfunding a book about beer. Yep. And that's now come to fruition. It's funded. Uh, and that book is the reason I'm in Australia right now. So uh, it's a book about hops, barley, yeast, and water. Uh, as a writer who's been looking at beer That'd for look 12 years. That would look good on a t-shirt. It would, wouldn't it? It's so much to do that. Um, <laughs> see, what, what, how our um, shirts say, uh, hops, bread, novelty, and hype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, after writing about beer for a long time, I thought, why not write about the product and, uh, and really get under the skin of the product? And the main inspiration for that was that most people I speak to don't know what beer is made of. So it's the most popular alcoholic drink in the world. And you stand up in front of a, a beer tasting um, event and say, okay, what's in this beer? And people say, uh, hops? Sugar. And you go, you go hops? Yep, yep. Most people say malt and barley. Yes, um, yes, and sugar. Yeah. Like a, my my three are, are hops, wheat, and chemicals. The, those are the top three answers <laughs> okay. I get. And and so I wanted to kind of assume zero. And I wanted to go back and say, okay, forget everything I think I know about how beer is made and what the ingredients are, and just investigate each ingredient in turn. Uh, so I've been, for the last year, I've been going to uh, hop harvests. I've been to barley fields as they're being harvested. Go to yeast laboratories. Uh, tasting hard ale water from the wells of Burton-on-Trent and then going to taste the soft water in Pilsen uh, and just really trying to do each ingredient individually because they've, they've each got great stories. Um, you think about everyone knows that wine is made out of grapes and people know about different grape varieties. It's like, well, each one of the four ingredients in beer has at least as many incredible stories and facts as, as grapes do in wine and I want to kind of bring that to life. And so after I was doing uh, hop harvest in Kent uh, in the UK and hop harvest in the Yakima Valley in the States. The guys at Stone and Wood, because of the crowdfunding, because I was promoting it, because I was talking about what I was doing, they said, well, mate, you need the Southern Hemisphere in there. You need the Galaxy hop in there. So they very kindly brought me over here and uh, we were in the hop fields in Tassie a week ago. Uh, I personally... That, that, that for me was a transformational experience, walking yeah. through the hop harvest and, and, and seeing... Um, it's incredible. It's just incredible. how vast it is and how real it is and, and, and how agricultural the product 
whereas reception of our beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, it's still very industrialised and it's very kind of you know sanitised in terms of its stainless steel. And yeah, people think of beer as being a factory-made product. Yeah, and you see the hops in the field and you go, well, there's at least at least as much romance and heart and, and uh, horticulture as there is in growing grapes. For and there's also a lot of God's whim in yeah. you know in that you sort of. We, this year's galaxy might be particularly punchy. It might be more passion fruit and less lychee, and yeah. uh, and, and then it's the skill of the brewer and everything else to sort of to, to get the balance right. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's um, and, and and hops hops are the hops are the ingredient that get people passionate in beer. You know, people walk around wearing uh, hop shaped hats and, and yep. t-shirts with tattoos of hops. Tattoos. Hop yep. tattoos. No one, no one gets malt tats. No one gets malt tattoos. No one, <laughs> no, no one gets yeast tattoos. No one walks around with t-shirts with barley on them. T three, yeah, crystal malt. <laughs> and it, you know, the book, the book was, the book was originally going to be a book all about hops, but it was going to be a hop mania, you know. And then I, after about ten seconds of thinking about it, I thought, why just hops? And I thought I need to approach these other ingredients as well and learn about them. And barley's been amazing, you know, the, the whole, the whole malting process, which sounds, the words malting process make it sound boring. But it's miraculous. Not at all. It's and miraculous. The, the number of tastings that we do, um, and I invariably, the one ingredient that I always take is malt because you, you taste a Pilsner malt, you taste a crystal malt, you taste yeah. a chocolate malt, and then you taste a roast malt. And just those four of the hundreds yeah. of different malts, they suddenly start to understand whether the colour and the flavour and the yeah, texture sweetness. and the richness and all Rain. those things. And then you say each of those malts could have come from the same stock of barley. Yeah. It's yeah. just yeah. the way it's been treated by the malts that's yeah. made it like that. And that is just one of the palette of flavours that yeah. you can bring to beer. And, and people just get it straight away when they do that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you don't even get that with hops. I mean, people stick their nose in a bag of hops. And so sort of just go, oh, it's a bit like weed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but malt just changes people's perceptions. Yeah, it really does. <coughs> I think we're, uh, well, you, you, you've got a uh, presentation to give. Uh, I've got to carry on talking like this downstairs. To, yeah. Tonight we're talking about the uh, Stone and Wood new season uh, Pacific Ale. Mm -hmm. Now, it, admittedly, like they, they are, as I sort of jokingly said before, they are sponsors. They're not sponsoring this podcast or anything like that. But, but they, they are good, to come good friends out. of the program. Yeah. But you have had the chance to go to Byron Bay, um, which yeah. is part of God's own, God's own country, and it rained. Um, <laughs> but, uh, That's crowded house set. I always take the weather, weather with me. From England. Four seasons in one day. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had the chance to travel as widely as you have. And uh, you know, most of my um, awareness of, of beer comes from avidly reading what, what's going on. And I still get the sense in Australia that we seem to be, as a result of our climate and our tax system, Australians seem to really be concentrating on that less than 4%, 4.5% um, pale ale that's got lovely hop character, beautifully integrated bitterness, um, and is just that really mm. sociable drinking beer. Um, in again, not, not, not sort of seeking, you just say, yeah, Australia's fantastic, you guys make the best beer in the world. But what, what's your perception of, of that style of beer that Australians? Well, I think it's right for Australia. I think if you're in Byron, you don't want to drink, um, you know, an eight percent hop bomb. You certainly don't want to be drinking Imperial Stouts. No. Um, and and I think I think that's, what, that's Melbourne, where there's nothing else going on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think what you're seeing is Australia evolving its own take on what craft beer is all about, and I, and I think it's a product of the environment and a product of the climate. And I'm wholly supportive of it. I, I, re, I really think it's what you should be doing. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. You know, it ties back into this whole, this whole idea of uh, 
craft beer as a global template that's dictated by the north northwest coast of America versus craft beer as a global thing that's got local traditions and styles. And I, and I think for it to survive and prosper, it has to kind of look at the local thing. And I've been really cheered by finding that this is uh, Australia's craft beer style. It might not be what I want to drink when I'm home in London and it's raining and it's five degrees. Well, that's because you, that's you in palms like warm beer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and flat, and flat. With <laughs> flat, flat beer. Yeah. <laughs> Pete Brown, it really has, you know, I, I, I think we've, this is our third podcast we've done with you, and uh, you and I have had a number of chats on radio yeah. and uh, exchange emails, and uh, it, it really is a thrill to finally get to sit down and have a beer with you, and uh, thank you very much for joining us on Radio News. Well, thank News. you. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Cheers. In the garden, what a garden, only happy faces. There you go, Prof. Uh, but that, it, it, it was almost as if we never started the tape with that one. We just, it was just a chat. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And and uh, listeners, for those wondering, you know, Matt kind of privately said to me, I'm always worried, you know, like, you know, the, the, the concept of um, yeah, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes in person because, you know, so often they, they disappoint. Um, but in this case, uh, yeah, Pete, what you see is what you get, pretty much. Just a gen- you know, he coined the phrase, or we, we, we are willing to give him credit for coining the phrase, uh, beer is the most sociable drink in the world. Um, and it is very appropriate that it came from him and that that has been his factor around beer because he is just such a lovely, sociable guy. And you know, to, to the point, Pete, we, um, we, when we went out to dinner um, with him afterwards, um, I just which, which, again was un- to... which again was unplanned. Un- unplanned, yeah, exactly. Come out and have dinner with you. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Um, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Um, but I, I just sort of said to him, "Look, you know, what are you up to tomorrow?" He said, "You know, I'm not sure. I fly out Saturday. This was Thursday night." Um, I said, "Look, you know, if you want to have a bit of a stroll around Brisbane or a bit of a tour around Brisbane, happy to take you." But it, I left it at that. I didn't want to be that guy who, you know, oh, can I, can, <laughs> can I take you around? Can I carry your bags for you? Can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Get you a beer. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to be that guy. Hopefully I wasn't that guy. But then I just quite inadvertently, uh, you know, I thought I'd hear from him or his people um, that, yeah, you know, it'd be great. Um, I'm at, you know, not doing anything. Let, let's go. You know, I just happened to bump into Hugh Doyle from Stonerwood the next day at lunchtime. I was in a bottle shop getting some beer for a tasting and um, he said, oh, where's Pete? I said, oh, I don't know. Where is he? <laughs> he said, well, he's in his hotel room waiting for you. You're apparently taking him around today. <laughs> Oh, shit. So fortunately, um, ended up managing to uh, yeah um, catch up with him and uh, take him around to Green Beacon, Newstead, uh, Catchment, um, to the craft bottle shop uh, where he picked up a couple of nice bottles of Australian wine and uh, yeah, had a really nice chat with him. And uh, Dave Padden was in town. There were a couple of other guys in town. Uh, so yeah, he got to get a bit of a sampling of a couple of Australian craft breweries and brewers and uh, try some good beer. So it was and it was just you know genuinely good company. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so listeners, uh, now get out and buy anything, his book. Support the man. Buy his book. Buy his books. I was astounded that, considering how well known he is, how great the reads of his and how uh, well he of writes. His books are, are timeless. Yeah. Um, and I know that I'm not unique in describing him as the Bill Bryson of beer writers, but he certainly has that engaging, witty, you know, turn of phrase. He's only made the advance back on one of his books. Um, which just astounds me for a guy who is known internationally, and that shows where book sales are, um, that, you know, you're just not getting, you know, that's how low sales are. So if you think guys who have got a book out and are well-known are just rolling in cash, 
um, and why the hell are they crowdfunding their next book? It's because you get a very paltry sum when you sign the contract um, to write a book. Um, that is meant to give you the money to you know, cover your time for writing it, but it doesn't really even do that. And it certainly doesn't reward you for the thoughts and the, you know, the originality of the thoughts if you're a good writer. Um, and you only get then paid more money if you sell, you more, books sell more books you've already been paid for. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you think about how many years um, and you know, how, <laughs> how much of a strain it was on his uh, you know, marriage when he just took off trying to get a keg of beer from uh, England to yeah, India. Yeah, yeah, to recreate um, the journey. And he fundamentally he hasn't been paid for it, you know, in, in a meaningful sense. So, listeners, he is a great bloke. If you enjoy his writing, he is well worth, uh, you know, forking over your money to um, uh, and you're buying it because you will be very well entertained. Um, yeah, so but no, great chat, really, really good chat. Um, Hope you enjoyed it, listeners. Yep, no, no need for the music uh, today, Lockie. Uh, no iTunes reviews. Did you, uh, did actually, you leave the the answering machine on? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think I may have missed a call. So, listeners, if you tried to phone to leave a message, as we've been begging you to for the last couple of months. Um, I had just assumed that Skype operates even if it's not on because isn't that what the cloud is meant to do? Um, but, yeah, it, it wasn't on, on my laptop and so the you didn't get the answering machine where you could leave the voice. So I need to work have a workaround. But it is genuine, gen, generally on. So caller, please call back if that was you. Um, we genuinely do want to hear your uh, cards and letters. Um, or, or your thoughts. Uh, that said, actually, there were, I, I will just sort of um, go through, there were one or two emails. Um, Paul Pacey, who I caught up with, uh, who's a Brisbane boy, who you met at the Pete Brown thing. Yes. Prof. Yes. Um, and he's he's corresponded with us regularly in the past. And uh, yes, he listened to us. Um, we talked about the Bavarian Beer Cafe business model, I think, in the podcast before Charlie's. Yes. Um, about their dodgy you, advertising. Yeah. Um, and they actually we, of, their, of their craft beer range. And while I was in Sydney for the IBD, I did get along to it, and it is just terrible and tacky. Um, the, 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 the beer is perfectly good. Um, I don't know what they exactly mean by house brewed, though, because we did when, see that, didn't you, we, on the advertising on a bus, maybe? Yeah, or a or poster a, and a, you know, a billboard. Like, I thought, if you go oh, into a restaurant and they're telling you about their house-made chutney or their house-made sourdough or, you know, house-brewed you know, house brewed beer, um, that actually means that it is made on the, on the in premises. the house. Yeah, not contract-brewed for the premise. It means made on the premise um, is, I, I believe, the colour. Yeah, I, I would have thought. Um, and putting it in German, spelling it H-A-U-S, doesn't get you out of uh, <laughs> not telling the truth. But anyway, uh, back to Paul's uh, email. Um, Hi, Matt and Prof. In regard to your conversation about the new Bavarian Beer Cafe business model offering locally contract beers in addition to the imported German beers, I would encourage you to get along and try for yourself, which is exactly... I took you up on that, uh, Paul, so thank you. A paddle of 450ml glasses cost us $12. That's 
They were all average, pale, blonde, Munich lager wheat, except for the wheat beer, which was above average, I thought. The imported wheat beers are excellent, but I would definitely appreciate the freshness of the locally uh, brewed wheat beer. Um, and look, I, I actually tried, we, let's see, between us we tried the um, pale, which was not in any way, shape or form German, but that's cool because we are in a period of great innovation. Um, none of us bothered trying the blonde. Uh, I had the Munich lager, which was a cracker. It was a really nice Munich lager. Um, the wheat beer was nice. Um, the third person in our party had the Spartan, the imported Spartan. Um, Munchenlager. Uh, Hellas. Yeah, Munchenlager. Yep. Um, and I'll tell you what, it, Charlie Bamforth says drink it as close to the brew as you can. There was still just a beautiful malt character about the uh, Spartan that the Australian version just didn't capture. Um, so, yeah, so Paul, so thank you for that. We, we did get along and try it. I still think that their advertising is ludicrous. Um, I'm actually, yeah, doing a story on a prop. I'm actually going to get some designers and people to to comment on it, um, and maybe even you know a, a range of views about it. Yeah. Um, but then again, we can have two sort of middle-aged white blokes, privileged white blokes like ourselves, talking all we want about sexism, um, and it won't change the world one bit. Um, but I did notice that we were sitting there, two blokes, uh, actually James Atkinson, Bruce News Editor, um, Catherine from the CBIA and myself were sitting there sort of discussing it, you know, aren't these ads appalling? And yet there were more women in the room than there were men. So, mm, I, you know, I, I, I just didn't quite have the nerve to go up and sort of say, aren't you offended? Aren't you belittled by this advertising? Because I presume that if they're sitting there surrounded by it, they're probably not. So, there yeah. you go. I don't know what to make of that prof. I'll just, I don't need, think I need to add any more to it. But, uh, but yes, Paul Pacey, thank you very much for uh, your writing. Um, let me see. Oh, sorry, we, we did get one more um, uh, email. It was from Brews News editor James Atkinson. Um, just listening to the podcast, gents. Uh, I think he's talking about the one that we did before, Charlie. Yeah, uh, with the um, guys we must have. Yeah, we must have made a comment about Cole's private label beers such as Three Pub Circus um, and Steam Rail yep. um, coming from Asahi, I believe. No, we said, Crusader. didn't we say, no, we didn't say, oh, did we? I would have picked you up on that if you'd said it, and I'm sure I would have said it. Wait, okay. Um, I, I, because it, there you go. He, he, he shared a link with me that says that they had done a brew pack. Yeah, I thought it was brew pack. Okay. Well, obviously we didn't because he uh, he did send us a note correcting us, and uh, I promised him that we would he would get a full correction. There we go. Correction made. So there we go. We're sorry, James. That unless we there was a confusion about uh, mountain goat being brewed at the same place as. Uh, yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sorry, yeah, it, yeah. it may have been. We uh, we have we have referenced that before in terms of uh, retail staff telling you yes. personally that this particular beer, Steam Rail. It's brewed at the same place they brew Mountain Goat. Yes, I think that might have been it. And in the interest of full disclosure, I probably should point out just before the brew pack ad rolls that brew pack are obviously a sponsor. Um, but then again, I, I, I reckon that actually uh, shows our independence there, Prof, because that otherwise... That will, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, when we mentioned it last time, we would have been able to say, how fantastic the beers are because they're made at brew pack. <laughs> and brew pack certainly know how to brew a contract brewed beer. And if you're looking for a contract brewed beer, listeners, get along. Talk to the boys at Brewpack. There you go, Lockie. We probably don't need to insert the ad today. That was a library. 
<laughs> Anything else, Prof? No, no, I think we'll let the guys go now. They've had a, they've had a lot of chat today. They have had Hopefully a lot of chat. Hopefully that's got you through your morning. Oh, oh, uh, sorry, we do need to do one more thing um, before we before we do. And this week, the official program launch for Good Beer Week. Um, it dropped. Um, now, this is gross, you know, crass commercialism. Um, kind of. Actually, it's not really. Because, no. yeah, we, we're um, in-kind sponsors for, we sponsor the... Um, Beer Geek Stream. Beer program. Geek Stream. Yeah. So, and uh, for the first time, we've actually done a serious ad for ourselves. Um so check it out. We won't tell you what it is. We won't put it on the, the website. But check out the Bigger Than Xmas, Bigger Than Christmas, um, Good Beer Week program. It is, as you described it, SA Prof, a weighty tome. It is, yeah. No, there's a, it's, it's very well produced. I don't know what I've got to do to you know sneak in as a, a good beer person after seven years now of being involved you know, on, the, on the fringes of Good Beer Week. But... <laughs> Maybe that was my fault for including you <laughs> in the editorial that uh, we were given. But I, I, I did. It's not about us. It's just about it's conversation about of myself. Yes, it is. Yeah. But uh, certainly, seek out your bigger than Christmas good beer official program. It is, it is a um, cracker. Or it's not often that you hear people raving about the. You know, everyone who has an app raves about their app. Um, you don't often hear people who are using the app go, "You've got to get onto this." Um, and we had that happen. Uh, your friend Kel pulled yeah. out his iPhone yeah. and said, as we were talking about the program. You've got to get onto this, boys. The iPhone app that contains all of the programs, it lets you go through, and as you're streaming your way through the programs, you know, create a short list of all the ones you want to that you can then go and edit, and you've got your complete world tour of uh, Good Beer Week there. So um, download it. I didn't check whether it's for Android. I presume they would, um, I would these so. days. I would, yeah. yeah. Let's, so, let's just, yeah, assume so until directed otherwise. And also look out for um, James, Pete and I will be giving our, as sponsors of the uh, Beer Geek program, um, giving you our thoughts on, yeah, just the thoughts on the, the events that we're going to try and get along to, um, or would certainly would if we had more time during Good Beer Week. So uh, couldn't let that go without no, no. giving them we'll a We'll make point. you some good recommendations, listeners. And make a point of getting down to Melbourne, because it certainly is where, yeah, if profit, do, will I get myself into Not trouble if I, you know... Just as we finished, no, it's, it's, you know, Bruce Vegas in my own hometown. No, but good, good beer week is the premier beer festival in the country. I, I don't think that you know, listeners, write in and tell us if you disagree. Um, but I reckon that if you were going to go to one beer festival this year, um, get down to uh, Good Beer Week because and you know, make the most of Melbourne. Yes, I, and, and yes, I, Melbourne actually had a nice day. Yeah. Weather-wise? Yeah, good on you. Don't say that like it doesn't often happen. We, uh, can well, I tell you, autumn in Melbourne is just beautiful. Crisp, cool, um, sometimes bracingly fresh mornings. Um, but then you know, not a cloud in the sky. Once the sun's risen, it's beautiful and warm. And then, um, you know, just when it's time to go home, you sort of, you know, come home to a nice warm house as it starts getting cool. So, anyway, works for us. Hopefully, hopefully you'll jag a day in Melbourne as part of Good Beer League yeah. week like I did today. So anyway, Prof, let's get out of here. Thank you. Lovely catching up. Thanks for taking yourself away from the family to join me while we chatted to Pete and uh, talk to you again uh, possibly next week. Now, next week we are speaking to Chev from Good Beer Week um, and you're going to be in the depths of Tasmania. So we're hoping that we can you know, book some satellite time to have a chat. Otherwise, I might be flying solo. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I've just got to kind of position the, uh, the laptop on the um, recycling bin and then stand on one leg to sort of sometimes to, to get good uh, connection. But 
Uh, I'll do my best if I can if I can be there in person. Otherwise, I'll um, I'll phone in on uh, on the mobile and give you ten minutes, and perhaps James could warm my seat for me while I'm while I'm holidaying. We might do that. That'd that'd be great. So anyway, Prof, always good to chat. Thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. Um, don't forget that we do this uh, largely for free. Um, in fact, pretty much in Prof's case, it's absolutely for free. But you can help us out. Let people help people find us. Tweet about us. Um, hashtag at Osbrews News or um, Pete Mitchum is uh, at Beer Blokes. I'm at Good Beer Matt. Let people know you've listened to it. Leave a review on your favourite podcasting platform, and uh, you'll get it read out. But if you like what we do, help other people find it as well. Until next week, Prof. Cheerio. Strike up the band. <laughs>